Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined today by the beautiful, beautiful Lauren, who's mental as a mother. Um, that is her Instagram handle, but potentially her personality as well. I'm not sure. Pretty much. <laughs> um, and Lauren's here to share her story, her incredible story um, with PNDA with both of her daughters, as well as things that have helped her. So psychologist, psychiatrist, and MBU. That's right. But... Lauren also has gone through a certain treatment called EMDR, so eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. It's a mouthful, Um, but yeah, it's used in the treatment of trauma and I think is increasingly becoming used around birth trauma. And I'm, I'm so honored Lauren's willing to share that because I know mental health is a passion of hers. It's why I'm so drawn to her account. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for chatting to me and all of us really. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to share my story and um, hope that someone can relate to it. I have no doubt. I mean, I, I think I already relate to some of it, but I don't <laughs> even know your whole story. So you had PNDA with both of your girls. Yeah. So I have... Um, I'm married to a woman, Alex, um, and so we conceived both of our daughters via IVF. Um, Ivy is five. She just started school this year and our youngest, Luca, is two and a half. And yes, I had PNDA with both, but much worse with my second daughter. Yeah. And did that present during pregnancy or was that very much so in the postpartum period? Um, Look, I have had... um, Looking back, I've had anxiety probably forever. I just didn't label it as such. I hadn't sure. been diagnosed. Um, in my, I'm I'm now 42, so I started my motherhood journey a little bit older. I was almost 37 when I had Ivy, um, but throughout my 20s and 30s, I'd had bouts of you know mild to moderate depression and had seen a psychologist several psychologists over the years um, I'd never had to take medication before so I'd been able to um, get on top of that with lifestyle changes exercise you know not drinking regular talk therapy that type of thing um, but yeah with both of my daughters it really hit me when they were six months old the depression so I think um, it was a combination of I had traumatic births with both which I'll certainly get into Please, um, yeah. but that cumulative exhaustion over those first few months with a newborn. I think once I finished riding the wave of hormones and that beautiful, I was lucky enough to experience a beautiful newborn love bubble with both of mine. Um, I get to that six month mark and I just fall into a big dark hole. And particularly with my second daughter, it was much, much worse. So you had that newborn bubble. Yeah. Despite, I mean, I know your births were very traumatic. Yeah, I felt really lucky because I wasn't particularly maternal. I actually never thought that I wanted children. And it wasn't until I turned about 35 or 36, it felt like a biological emergency. <laughs> and we we start, Alex and I started the journey of working out what it would take to make a family. Our kids have conceived with um, donor sperm. So there's a whole process you have to go through. That's probably a, a topic for another day. But um, with Ivy, I was depressed towards the end of my pregnancy. I was um, quite sick the first half with nausea, but no vomiting. Um, But around the beginning of the third trimester, I started experiencing really severe carpal tunnel syndrome in my hands. Um, And it was largely to do with all the swelling and I was starting to, you know, have fluid and all of that. But it started as just the regular garden variety carpal tunnel with tingling hands, but it progressed to really severe um, 
nerve compression and like crushing pain in my hands. So I would get to the evenings and have my hands in a bucket of ice before I went to bed. And then I'd go to bed with frozen bags of peas propped up with my arms rested on those just to try and get some sleep. And I'd wake up every hour and have to get up and shake my arms out. So for three months before I even had the baby, I was really sleep deprived. And obviously that really messes with your mental health. By by the time I had her, I was exhausted and quite anxious. And I would wake up from dreams that trucks were running over my hands. That's how bad the nerve pain was. So I didn't have the best start. And then um, at around 39 and a half weeks pregnant, I had decreased fetal movement. So it was sort of put to us that, you know, it's certainly an option to wait it out or you can induce. And we decided to go for the induction. And I just thought at that point that if anything were to happen, I I could never recover. So we went ahead with an induction, which if anyone's experienced an induction with uh, Syntocin, the hormone drip, it's very full on. You don't get that gradual build in labor. You go from zero to 100 pretty quickly. Within about 14 hours, I was just, you know, I'd been awake all night having back-to-back very intense contractions and I was already exhausted and only a couple of centimeters dilated. So I ended up begging for an epidural. And then once I had that, I was stuck on my back on the bed. I couldn't walk, I couldn't move around. So I wasn't able to have the sort of active labor that I'd imagined. The good thing was I got to have a bit of rest. I had a few hours sleep before we got to action stations but um, by the time it was time to push my epidural wore off and then Ivy got stuck I'd pushed for nearly two hours in birth suite and they ended up preparing me for an emergency Caesar but we were going to theatre to try to get her out with the vacuum first but if we had no luck with three pulls with the vacuum they were going to perform a cesarean so They gave me morphine but hadn't told me and morphine makes me vomit. So, you know, it was just, it just went from this really peaceful Alex and I and our midwife in a dimly lit birth suite, you know, with beautiful music on and fairy lights to, you know, all the lights on, 20 people in the room. I felt like I was being talked about, not to. Um, I'd gained a lot of weight in pregnancy. They were referring to my maternal BMI and, you know, in front of me as I wasn't there. And I was just naked and stuck on my back and couldn't move from the epidural. And I can just remember Alex yelling, well, someone put a sheet over her, you know, like I was naked and vomiting as they're transferring me to a gurney and just no dignity in that experience whatsoever but I was very lucky that I didn't end up having to have a cesarean we got her out on the second pull with the vacuum the second push pull um, and they put her on my tummy and she's I remember her sliding straight off I was so out of it from the morphine that I didn't even realize she was my baby (laughs) and I looked down and said whose baby is this my baby's not out yet and the nurses and midwives were saying you've got to hold on to her this is your baby and then Um, I was really lucky. Ivy looked up at me and as soon as we had eye contact, I just had this massive rush of oxytocin and the effects of the morphine just wore off and I was completely lucid. I've got goosebumps recalling it, like just completely in love with her and completely lucid and um, back in the room and in the moment. But um, because my temperature had gone up by a degree during the labour, they said she needed IV antibiotics. So she was quickly taken away to resus and we were separated for a few hours and I just found that so difficult because I, um, again, I was completely lucid. I had this massive rush of adrenaline having just met my beautiful baby and then I was just wheeled to recovery and left there. There was nobody with me, no nurses. <laughs> I was just completely wide awake and charged with all these emotions and my baby and Alex had gone with her to resus along with the midwife. I remember just there alone and every time I heard footsteps I was sort of looking around the corner to see if it was my baby but it wasn't. They had a lot of trouble getting a cannula in her tiny little vein in her hand so she was there for a good couple of hours and it wasn't until two or three hours later that someone came and told me we haven't been able to cannulate her. We're going to take you up to the ward but baby's going to stay in special care and I said absolutely not take me to where she is. So um I had to fight for it, but they wheeled me up and I was on the gurney just outside where she was, but I could at least see her. Um, and fortunately, they eventually got the cannula in and within, you know, three or four hours of her being born, we were up in our room recovering and getting to know each other. But it was a, yeah, it was a wild start to my mothering journey for sure. And I had a tear and all of that. So that, you know, that, none of that's very fun to recover from. 
No, and it, it might be little things, but they all compound. They do. And I'd really only planned as far as the birth. I'm sure I'm not the only person to say this. I actually didn't prepare much at all for motherhood. I was just so invested in this beautiful natural birth. I'd wanted a drug-free natural labor. I had my beautiful midwife who was just beautiful and I adore her. I always will. <laughs> She'll always be yeah. in my heart. Um, but um, because my labor had gone for so long, she also had to leave after 12 hours and a second midwife had to come in who I didn't know. So I felt a real sense of loss around that as well, around my midwife not being there when my baby was actually born. So yeah, I had a lot of grief, which I didn't realise at the time I was, you know, sort of riding that newborn wave, but it definitely caught up with me later on. <laughs> you said it hit you around six months? Yeah, looking back, it actually probably hit me earlier. So Alex had six weeks off work, which was beautiful. We had six weeks in the love bubble and then she went back to her full-time job. And I remember when Ivy was eight weeks old, I don't know what it was, but we just had one of those weeks where it seemed like she cried for three days straight and she would only sleep if she was on top of me and I couldn't go to the toilet. I couldn't put her down to do anything, you know. And I remember walking into the next room and just yelling, will you shut the F up? And then I called Alex and said, you need to come home because I've just um, yelled this to our beautiful baby. I'm not cut out for this. We need a nanny. I need to go back to work. Um, and Alex, bless her, just said, well, let's just um, get you some rest. And if you still feel in a month, if you still feel like this, that you need to go back to work, then that's what we'll do. We'll get a nanny and you can go back to work. But as we all know that um, four weeks later, that's the end of that fourth trimester mm -hmm. and things definitely start to feel a bit more rewarding when they're smiling and feeding and growing and all of that. So I had definitely struggled early on, but I guess it was just normal adjustment to parenthood. But at the six month mark, what it looked like was me just feeling like I couldn't get off the couch and Ivy absolutely loved Elmo on Sesame Street. So I would just put Sesame Street on and sit her on the squishy mat in the lounge room with her toys and I would feed her and do the whole eat, sleep, you know, change, yeah. bathe, repeat cycle. But other than that, I didn't really take her out. I didn't go to the library. I didn't do anything. I just flopped on the couch and then felt terribly guilty for doing that. So I had a great psychologist and I'd actually seen her for years. Um, so she knew me very well. And when I went and sort of shared with her how I was feeling, she said it might be time that we think about um, a a low dose antidepressant and that was the first time I'd taken one but um, I went on an SSRI and I felt better within you know a few days so that made like the world of difference for me. I'd also planned to have a whole year off work but I ended up going back two days a week when Ivy was nine months old and that also just really helped me sort of feel like my old self again. I need to be able to talk to grown-ups and <laughs> use my brain and yeah. and then I enjoyed my days home with her so much more. You know, we all have these plans about when we'll go back to work. And I think life surprises us, motherhood surprises Absolutely. us. Absolutely. You make a plan, chuck it out the window because the baby sets the agenda. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of my biggest learnings. I, You know, I work in a professional job. I've got a postgraduate degree. I was used to going to meetings and managing projects and being in control. Yes. And if, some, <laughs> if an issue came up, I could problem solve it. Yeah. Whereas being at home with this baby, I thought, I'm just making this up as I I go like I don't know what I'm doing I'm not in control here I you are in control I've just got to follow your lead and your needs and I, I actually found that I sort of resented Alex a bit she got to go to work and do something she knew how to do and was good at and you know could go to the toilet whenever she needed and eat lunch with both hands and I just felt like I wanted this with all along I wanted to be the one who was pregnant but I yeah I really felt some resentment and that was something we had to work through as well I mean we probably talk about this a lot it's very hard for us high achievers yes, yes. or perfectionists we like to do everything right we have to do it to 110 percent of our capacity and then even after it's done we're still worrying did we do a good enough job Absolutely. I was doing my postgrad study before I was pregnant and I remember saying to my colleague, oh, I'm going to do my last subject of my postgrad while I'm on mat leave. Yep. And they were saying to me, you, you're not going to have time. You know, these were people that had kids. And I just remember thinking, watch me. I mean, and I did do it. That's the thing. I did it, but it nearly killed me. Yep. I finished it when I was 11 months old. But 
just that sense of I need to feel like I'm achieving and yeah. I guess you know keeping an infant alive and thriving every day I should looking back I should have been able to find achievement in that but I just being the type of personality that I have <laughs> always need to be doing more and look Ivy was a really tricky sleeper so I guess I felt like I was doing something really wrong mm. um I remember going to child health and dealing with quite an old school nurse and midwife there with old school views around sleep training and yeah. and we didn't we didn't do any sleep training no absolutely no judgment to anyone who does but it it, it wasn't for us and so I remember this quite matronly <laughs> old school midwife sort of telling me that it was my anxiety that was causing my baby not to sleep well. And um, so I really internalised that as I'm doing something wrong, I'm not any good at this. And I, that definitely contributed a lot. What a horrible thing to say. Oh, yeah, we didn't go back to her. <laughs> your kid's not no. sleeping because they're not sleeping. <laughs> like it's nothing to do with your anxiety. That's right. She had high sleep needs and being exhausted was what was making me so anxious. I needed support, not judgment. And I think that's um, something that we all need in those early days, right? Of course. And I'm sorry that was said to you. I was lucky I had such a wonderful midwife who I was still in touch with and I actually shared with her what that um, nurse had said to me and she actually said to me, well, did you tell her to F off? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, you know, that helped me sort of cut through that message and see that it, it wasn't right. <laughs> I guess getting to my second, yeah. my second go of it is where I really, really got sick. Um, when Ivy was around... Um, about to turn two, we decided it was time to have another baby. Uh, originally, we were going to carry one baby each, but Alex decided um, that it wasn't something that she really saw herself doing. She didn't sort of identify with being pregnant or I think mm. it was just seeing what I went through. She didn't want to do it, to be honest. Yeah. And I had actually been thinking I desperately wanted to do it again and yeah. we knew we only wanted two children. So when she asked me if I would do it again, um, I was absolutely elated because I wanted a second shot at the birth that I wanted. Um, so Ivy is my egg donor sperm mm -hmm. and then with Luca we actually used Alex's egg and the same donor so Alex went through the process of the IVF that time you know stimulating her eggs and the egg retrieval and fertilization um, with Ivy with my eggs we only got one embryo and um, so when she was put in that I guess that was that heightened sense of anxiety around you know we've paid well over ten thousand dollars for this and this is our one shot but um, the day that we went in, they told me that she was a grade 4 AA morphologically perfect embryo. And I thought, there you go. She's a high achiever already. That's <laughs> going to be our baby. <laughs> How typical. Um, and then with Alex's eggs, we got four. Um, and I thought, of course, you know, she's laid back. And of course, it worked, worked better for her. Um, but we did a, a transfer and... Um, got pregnant again first go but we lost that one at um, eight weeks had a miscarriage sadly and then we tried again the following month and that transfer didn't take um, but then on the third transfer we got pregnant with Luca but I had hyperemesis that time so I was violently sick from actually from the day I start taking the medication. So two weeks before an embryo transfer, you start taking progesterone and another medication, I can't remember. But I started being sick the day that I started taking that medication. And I was sick right the way through. I had about a six-week reprieve. At about the 26-week mark, I stopped vomiting for six weeks and I thought it was over. But then it started again at 32 weeks. Um, I was so sick that I would vomit to the point of having um, petechial hemorrhaging, so burst blood vessels under the skin in my face. I, my face would look like I had the measles or something because I would just be covered in red spots, burst blood vessels in my eyes. I was just so, so sick. I was actually really grateful for COVID because I got to work from home and vomit yeah. in the privacy of my own toilet. So I was really delighted to be pregnant again and the pregnancy itself was much easier. I'd had a carpal tunnel release surgery in preparation for the second pregnancy, so that wasn't a problem for me, but the hyperemesis was definitely pretty brutal. And so with Luca, we were watching her growth really closely on scans because I was throwing up so much. We had the same beautiful private midwife and she'd said from very early on, there's no way I'm missing this birth. <laughs> so no matter how long it takes, I'm 
going to be there when this baby's born. And we were actually planning to have a home birth. I wanted to birth in water at home, but we'd said all along that we would change that plan if we had any red flags. Um, So yeah, COVID hit pretty early on which meant you know our midwife appointments we had to do online which meant we couldn't hear the baby's heartbeat and all those little things that give you reassurance and stop you feeling anxious especially after a previous loss um alex couldn't come to my ultrasounds things like that you know anyone who's had a baby during that peak of covid would relate thankfully the news was always good when we went for ultrasounds because i can't imagine what it would be like being there alone if you were on the receiving end of bad news but i stayed on my antidepressant without pregnancy and I was really well I I was absolutely stoked to be doing it again Um, but in the second half of my pregnancy my scans showed that her growth trajectory was slowing down so she was still growing but where she'd originally been on say the 60th percentile she was now on the 40th and then at a follow-up scan she'd be on the 20th and it sort of got to the point where they said we can't push to 40 weeks we're going to need Mm. to get her out once you hit term so I was up for another induction so I hit 30 seven weeks and they were saying she was measuring you know roughly two and a half kilos and that her stomach circumference was only in the 10th percentile which meant that she had really low body fat so what they'd said was we needed to induce as soon as I got to 37 weeks but also um, she couldn't withstand a long labor so where they give you the cervical dilation drugs and hope that things kick off um, they wouldn't let me go as long as they otherwise would before hooking up the centosin drip and I really wanted to go without the centosin because she was little and my blood pressure had gone up a little bit we couldn't have that home birth so we were in obviously in hospital for an induction but I wanted to replicate that home birth experience as much as possible so again we had just Alex and I and our midwife Um, I booked a birth photographer knowing it was the last time that we were ever doing this Um, I had our wedding playlist playing in the birth suites we had fairy lights on and beautiful photos of Ivy to get that oxytocin going and did everything we could so in the morning we'd gone in super early and they gave me the cervical dilation gel and I'm really lucky I hyperstimulate to that so that is enough to put me in labor so I had quietly and comfortably labored all day just on the ward to the point where I said to Alex go to the driving range or something just get out of here (laughs) I was so relaxed and coping so well I had prepared I had done a hypnobirthing course I'd been having massages and acupuncture and raspberry leaf tea and bouncing on a ball and expressing colostrum and absolutely everything I could do to prepare um so Alex went to the driving range and then um, when she came back, they give you the cervical dilation drugs and then leave you for around six hours for it to work yeah. before they come back and check you. And by the time they came back to check me, it was like, wow, you're really dilated. We can break your waters. <laughs> so we're going to transfer you down to birth suites. So my midwife broke my waters at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and she said, normally we would now give you four hours to, to kick into labor um, before giving you syntosis but because baby's small we're only going to give it two hours and that was it for me you know that you know high performer I was like I don't want syntocin we're going to make this happen (laughs) so I'm like crab walking up and down the steps into the birthing pool I'm um, just doing absolutely everything I can to get this baby to come down and for labor to start but at the two hour mark my midwife Karen said look I'm going to have to go and get the drip ready and she went out and was hooking up the syntocin and I just went to the bathroom to do a wee and while I was sitting on the toilet my labor kicked in Um, by the time she came back in the room I was making these sort of guttural noises and Alex just said um Karen something's happened she's making different noises and um Karen just said and that's why we call it the dilation station (laughs) so something about sitting on the toilet was enough to tell my body it was time and I was in labor I ended up not needing syntocin and then I had a very very quick birth so I wasn't able to get in the pool because of the induction but I labored in the shower over a birth ball for a while and then um, Luca's heart it started to show that she was getting tired and a bit distressed so they got me up on the bed and pretty much said we need to get her out now um I was really lucky my body did most of the work for me I didn't I didn't have any drugs I had no gas and air or anything but my body was I was sort of involuntary it was involuntary the pushing right until my midwife said okay we need her out on the next push and I just did one big push and she came out super quickly she was tiny 2.4 kilos but I was just so happy that I'd gotten her out I was completely lucid the whole time being the control freak that I am I loved that I could feel everything I knew what was happening rather than that 
feeling of being numb. Um, so I had that beautiful birth. I had the golden hour. She did the breast crawl. We had delayed cord clamping, all of that. It was lovely and we got beautiful photography. But what we didn't know while I was lying on my back was that I was hemorrhaging. So an hour after she was born, I had a massive postpartum hemorrhage and lost two and a half litres of blood. And my blood pressure was 50 over 30, which is like you're about to go into a coma. So I ended up having to go to theatre and have a procedure done to stop that. So again, I was separated from her. But once all of the drama of that was over, like the next morning when I was back um, in the room with her again, I had that immediate completely in love, tiger mummy, I will do anything to keep you safe kind of feeling. Mm. Um, but then a couple of days later, so I because I'd had such a huge bleed, I was really anemic yeah. and very, very weak. So Alex had to stay with me in the hospital and push me around in a wheelchair. I couldn't, I couldn't stand up and I couldn't walk. And she had to stay with me to help me feed Luca every three hours because she was so tiny. We had to make sure she ate really regularly. And then on the third day, I was having an iron infusion and we were actually getting ready to go home. And then Luca went completely limp and blue and was rushed to recess. I thought she had, I thought that we'd lost her. Mm. Um, but she, sorry. That's okay. She had what's called a dusky episode. So um, because she'd had what they call a precipitous birth, a really fast birth, she wasn't sort of squeezed out the birth canal long enough to get all the mucus and fluid and stuff out of her airways. And so it's a natural instinct for newborns then to hold their breath if they're congested. So she just for a couple of days there was holding her breath regularly and going completely blue and scaring the absolute living daylights out of us. So she spent four nights in special care. Um, so we'd already been in hospital a few days and I'd had a couple of false starts of the induction before that where we'd been in hospital and sent home again. So by the time Luca finally got out of hospital four days later, I'd been in hospital pretty much for 10 days straight and hadn't seen my two-year-old almost that whole time. And I just remember the fourth day that we were sitting in the special care nursery, just sitting there crying because they said they just picked this nominal time that we could go home at 4 p.m. And I just sat there all day just desperate to see my two year old so that was all you know pretty scary and and traumatic but um once we got home I was fine I was back in that love bubble I was so enamored with the baby we had a really beautiful few months and then I went back to work when she was six months old this time I went back and I went back four days a week so quite full-on for having a six-month-old and a three-year-old at that stage and I think the depression the depression definitely hit me again then but I sort of um, pushed through it for a few months just because I of how I knew I felt with Ivy I think I knew look I'm not going to do a year I know I'm not going to last a year at home Um, and like for the first four or even five months I think I went back to work in early March and even in January I was thinking I'm so in love with this baby there's no way I can go back to work in a few weeks but something clicked around that February mark and it was probably the beginning of my PND yeah. <laughs> where I thought okay I'm ready to go back to work now yeah. this um, endless cycle of eat play sleep repeat I I, I am sorry to anyone who loves it but I find it so boring yeah. <laughs> being a stay-at-home mother I just I just I get really bored and really lonely I'm a flaming extrovert and that extrovert needs to be fed <laughs> by <laughs> by another adult conversation and I yeah I really hit that point in February where I was desperate to go back to work Um, but I think then you know I think I took on too much so four days a week even though that was the nature of my job and that's what I had to do I manage a small team and I need to be there for them I think that was a big part of why I fell in such a hole because I'm needed at work I'm needed at home you know what what's left for me yeah and it, it didn't get really bad until she was 11 months old. So that's when I um, got to the point where I just felt every day like I was walking around neck deep in wet concrete. It felt like every tiny task was too much. Just getting up off the couch felt like I was too tired. And for someone who talks as much as I do, like I work in communications, I talk and communicate for a living. I was almost monosyllabic. I couldn't I couldn't even look Alex in the eye properly because I just felt so ashamed of how how useless I felt. I couldn't do anything around the house. I was I felt like a complete burden and I didn't want to hurt myself, but I just I did feel like I was a burden and like everyone would be better off if I wasn't there because I was just another thing for Alex to have to deal with. Um I was 
still in love with my baby, but I really wanted a break. Um, so I booked a couple of nights in a hotel <laughs> and I went and had a Friday, Saturday night in a hotel by myself. Um, but when I came home, I still wasn't really any better. And I'd been to the GP. I wasn't sleeping well, even though I was completely exhausted. I had really dreadful insomnia. And I went to my GP and they changed my antidepressant from the SSRI that I was on to a different medication that was meant to try and help me sleep better. But coming off my SSRI, my serotonin just crashed. And four weeks after the medication change, I was just, that's when I was really, really dark and um, and really struggling to function and just to show up to work and pretend to be okay was not possible anymore. Um, so I went back to my doctor and said, look, these, these new meds aren't working. I feel worse, you know, and she sort of saw, saw the state of me that day and I was reassuring her, like I was, I was afraid to disclose how unwell I was because I was worried about her being taken off me or something like that. Yeah. But and I, so I kept stressing, I don't want to kill myself and I don't want to hurt my baby. And she just looked at me and said, Lauren, you don't have to need, you don't have to want to hurt yourself or your baby to need help. And I think we're at the point where you really need some more help and we should consider some time in hospital. So I didn't even know mum and baby units existed, but she told me about one um, at Belmont Private, which was only 20 minutes from my house. So I was you know, so, so lucky to have a private MBU close to home who had a space coming up within the next couple of days. So we made plans for me to go. And I told my boss and I found that really difficult. I work for a mental health organisation and my boss was a psychologist and I still found it really difficult to say, I've got really severe postnatal depression and I need to go to hospital. And the high performer that I am, I said, look, they've told me the average stay is three weeks, but I'll be very surprised if I'm not out in one. <laughs> And he just sort of, you know, nodded along and said, okay, Lauren, why don't you go in and look after yourself and you call me in a week and let me know how things are. <laughs> and of course I was in for three weeks. I needed to be. Yeah. But for me, the day that I was due to go in, I um, I was going to the MBU and that for me made it feel okay to be going into a psychiatric hospital. The fact that it was a mum and baby unit, I felt mm. less yeah. Like, you know, all of the stigma that talks in your brain, um, I felt like I could rationalise it because it was a mum and baby unit. Yeah. But the day I was meant to go in, I was all packed up and they called me and said, oh, we've just had to give your bed to someone else. So um, we can either admit you when another bed comes up in MBU or you can come into the main part of the hospital. And for me, that was really triggering because so much of why I was depressed was because I felt like my needs always came last. Mm. And so losing the bed to someone else, I just thought, oh, here we go. Once again, I'm not as important. And, you know, when I ended up in the hospital, I identified who it was who had gone in, who needed my bed. And she had postnatal psychosis and was very, very unwell. And she absolutely did need the spot more than I did. Um, but at the time, I found that really difficult. Um, but I did still choose to be admitted to the main part of the hospital. Um, and I spent two nights out there before an MBU bed came up. So just for context, this means you wouldn't have had Luca with That's you. That's right. And even going into the MBU, they'd said, you can bring your baby in if she's not walking. Mm. And I said, well, she's on the verge of walking. And actually, I'd prefer to come in without her because I really want to rest. I, I need a break. So as much as I felt guilty for that, I... Yeah, most of the mums in MBU had newish, either newborns or very young babies, and mine was 11 months old, and I, I'd opted to go in alone anyway. So by the time I did get into the mum and baby unit, I only spent two nights in there because I'd already spent two nights out in the main part of the hospital. Realised it wasn't the scary place that I thought it was. It was just full of other sad, anxious people like me. Yeah. <laughs> And um, when I was in the MBU, I found I was still quite overstimulated by all the noise of babies, all of the high chairs and the mess at mealtime and the toys. And mm -hmm. the, and I, I, I didn't connect with the other mums as much as I would have hoped because their babies were at totally different stages to mine. So after two days, I transferred back out to the main hospital um, and I spent nearly three weeks there. And that's a big thing, you know, especially, I mean, I was very similar. I pushed aside, oh, well, I'm going to the MBU, so it, it's special. Like, I'm I'm not a normal psych patient. I'm just a, you know, it's our own bullshit, right? Yeah. I've got postnatal depression. I'm not yeah. a crazy person. No. Like, you know, <laughs> this is because I've had a baby. It's hormones and I'm tired. Yeah. It's, it's not me, I swear. Yeah. But then when you actually interact, you just realise that such as normal people, humans going through 
through a really shit time and that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I met all sorts of people. I made great friends. I, um, you know, I did programs. I painted. I got rest. That was the main thing. And I'm really grateful. I love the psychiatrist that I was admitted under. He and I got along really well. And I think that was a big part of it for me. If I hadn't really connected with my doctor, I probably would have struggled. But he saw me for an admission consultation and he it was a Friday afternoon and he said look I'm obviously going home for the weekend I'm not going to see you again till Monday how about we get you on some medication to get you some sleep this weekend and then on Monday when you've slept we'll see where we're at and so yeah he put me on something that helped me sleep at night to the point where I was waking up at 4 30 in the morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and (laughs) that's when I actually started my website and started blogging about perinatal mental health because I was rested and I was full of creative ideas and I thought I'm going to tell the story of this because I've got energy and I've got space to do something for myself. So yeah, the following week I, yeah, like I said, I did all the programs. I sat in the sun. I painted, rested. My family was still able to come and visit me. So I saw my kids and my partner. Um, And the three weeks actually went by really, really quickly. And it was the best thing I'd ever done. And like you said, I just um, realized that you know, I still go back there now as an outpatient to see my psychiatrist every six weeks yeah. for my medications. And sometimes I just, I pull up and I think, gosh, I wish I could just stay the night. You know, it's a really safe, calm place. And when I'm having a chaotic day at home with the kids and there's noise everywhere and the dog's just thrown up or something, I think, oh, to be walking the sunny halls of the yeah. hospital again, you know, <laughs> I'd just love to be going to get a hot chocolate yeah. and sit in the sun. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's a safe calm place to get better and I felt like I've got a really hypersensitive nervous system so I get overstimulated easily and I get so worked up so escalated and I just feel like every day that I spent in hospital my nervous system exhaled a little bit more and by the time I came home I was just it, it was like I would, had just come down a few levels, you know. My shoulders had dropped. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes these places so special, you know. You never think you'd have a place in your heart for a psychiatric hospital, but you do. Exactly. I do. It saved me, absolutely. And I've been back. I um, Six months later, I actually went back in for a week. So I was really well when I came home, but... Um, on one of my transition days, so, you know, you've been in three weeks, you're getting ready to be discharged and they send you home yeah. for a day to try it out and then like on day release. Um, the day I went home, my three-year-old broke her leg jumping on the bed. Oh. So <laughs> when I did come home, I had a now, you know, about to be one-year-old and then a three-year-old who was in a hip-to-toe cast and, you know, you try keeping a three-year-old no. still for six <laughs> weeks, it's crazy. So life was extra difficult and stressful and obviously I had to go back to work but I was able to cope so much better because I'd had that rest but slowly over the next six months we sold our house and we were moving Um, we'd bought another house but had a gap in between where we had to live with my parents for a couple of weeks with all of our stuff in storage Um, and then I broke my foot and um, just all of that sort of piled up on top of me again and I'd been struggling during the sort of you know working parenting selling the house inspections all the time and Alex had said to me you might need to go back into hospital for a little top up and I I just said "I, I can't leave you with two kids the week that we're moving house you know when we get to mum and dad's and we've got some helping hands if I still feel like this then I'll go in but then when I broke my foot I said well I'm no good to you anyway (laughs) so that's it I'm going to hospital and I just went back in for a week and that was um about 18 or just over 12 months ago now and that's the last time I've had to go in so far (laughs) (laughs) I can't explain that sense of hope yeah knowing that if things ever get so bad I know where I can go absolutely it's just a safety net it is yeah 100%. and I've said to my psychiatrist you know I have times where I'm doing really well and times when I'm not doing so well and I'll say what would it take for me to need to come back in you know and he just said I know you well enough to know that if you told me you needed to come in then you would need to come in so even if that was just for three days or if it was for a week you know we would look at that at the time so like you say, having knowing that that safety net there is there and available anytime you need it. Just just anytime I get really overwhelmed, um, it's nice to know that I've got that available. Absolutely. And more people should. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is the whole point of sharing. More people should. There needs to be more mum and baby units. There should. I don't know why it, 
helps as much as it does because I mean even at home I had a really dark week recently and I'm I'm not drinking alcohol at all I get rest I take my medication I eat good food you know I do all the right things and I can still sometimes feel really overwhelmed and get really low and I think you know when am I going to be okay but just knowing knowing that I've got my next appointment with my doctor coming up and I've always got that option of being able to go back in if I need to um yeah definitely is a load off I'm really glad I'm really glad you had a good psychiatrist and it makes such a difference hey it does I think if I didn't have that rapport I I probably would have struggled a lot more to engage with the process Mm -hmm. but we had a great rapport and we still do um and yeah, I, as I said, I still see him every six weeks as an outpatient and, and um, yeah, he knows me really well. And, like, I'm someone who loves to understand myself and so I'll sort of say to him, if you could explain me to me, what would you say, you know? And he just he just does it in a way that is so – just takes away any sort of shame or blame. He just sort of explained, you know, you've got a big personality but there's an old underlying vulnerability. It will always be there. You know, you've got – this hypersensitivity you're definitely prone to anxiety and you you know you just need some more support during a difficult time and at the moment well at the time my kids were two and four he said you know life will be very different for you when they're four and six compared to now when they're two and four so it's just about supporting you through these next you know however many months or a couple of years however long it is until things get easier um so that just again just made it feel so so normalized and so um, it's just very comforting oh, to hear that from me. And, you know, you had that problematic medication that your GP changed you to. Did the yeah. psychiatrist come in and kind of save the day there, I guess? like Yes, <laughs> he changed me back to my previous medication straight away. <laughs> but he'd up, he upped the dose a little bit. So I was on a very low dose and he doubled it. Um, he also prescribed something to help with my anxiety, which I take PRN, yes. which is as required. Yeah. Um and so I still take that to this day as, you know, if I need it. Um, and I still take a medication every night to help me sleep because I'm a dreadful insomniac. <laughs> yeah. and, that, <laughs> and that makes all the difference for me. Being able to sleep um, and being on the right antidepressant and then having something to calm my <laughs> nervous system down when my anxiety kicks in. And I don't want to stay on all of those meds forever, but I know I need them now and I don't feel, I don't feel bad about taking them. And there's nothing wrong with needing a little extra support, especially we know insomnia and sleep, not just is a byproduct of um, mental ill health, but can actually cause mental ill health. Like it's so That's right. It's a circle. Yeah. So if you can make sure you get some sleep, it makes all the other shit you've got to deal with a hell of a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows which comes first, the anxiety or the depression. But for me, they're feeding each other like the Venn diagram of Mm -hmm. my mental health and my exhaustion is just a circle, you know. (laughs) There's no gaps. Um, So it doesn't matter which one came first. The fact is I need this, I need that support through medication and through going to see my doctor and I need to look after myself. Otherwise, I'm going to end up back walking those sunny halls and drinking hot chocolates (laughs) and I work full-time again now you know so I've got a really full life we you know we bought a house a year ago that we're slowly chipping away at renovating I've got as I said a two and a five-year-old so now I've got one in daycare and one in big school so two drop-offs and pickups you know yeah it very much feels like I do four shifts a day I do the early morning shift which is wake them up get them dressed, wrestle, you know, wrestle them into mm-hmm. eating breakfast, brushing hair, brushing teeth, out the door, getting them to daycare and school. Yeah. Then I start my second shift, which is my paid day job. Then there's the afternoon evening shift where you pick them up and feed them and you do um, home readers and, and all of that stuff, dinner time and bath and bedtime and tickling the back for an hour until you feel like your arm's going to fall <laughs> off and then, and then you go to bed and you know that you're just starting the overnight shift because you're going to have a two-year-old squirming up against your back in a few hours and and they're going to be calling out for you at 4.30 in the morning wanting breakfast and, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just um, there's there's not much time for anything else at the moment but it, it's a season. <laughs> but you still manage? Um, I... Some weeks I manage better than others. So um, this week my partner's had COVID. Um, so that's really 
this week's been a hard week. I'm pretty glad. <laughs> I'm pretty glad this week is over. Mm. Um, so, you know, she's been sleeping in a separate room, wearing a mask around the house and trying to stay away from the kids. So, you know, she's a very hands-on mm. partner and where I have less capacity, she always picks up the slack because her capacity to cope is a lot higher than mine. Her capacity to manage um, broken sleep is higher than mine. So usually if we've got a squirmy toddler in the bed, I'll go off to another room because I can't sleep in those circumstances. But this week I've had to sort of soldier on and, yeah, it's been a hard week. Yeah, yeah. it takes its toll. It definitely does. I'm feeling better today. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> um, so maybe if we go back a little bit, you mentioned before um, a period of rage um, mm. with Ivy. Did that come up again during that time with Luca? I don't remember it when she was really little. I, I do, um, for me, when I'm anxious, it does tend to come out as anger and aggression. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry, Alex, because you usually bear the brunt of it. Um, and also my depression comes out as that as well. Mm. If I'm sad, I it tends to come out as rage. I'm even lately if I'm really overwhelmed and I'm having a week where I just have got nothing left in the tank I can just feel myself escalate to the point where I could just scream and I've got to walk away to another room and sometimes I know that that's what's happening and that I actually just need a good cry but I find it difficult to let it out yeah and there was actually a night this is funny in hindsight but at the time I said to Alex I feel like I'm due for my quarterly big cry like I really need to let some feelings out but it's just not happening I can sort of get to the point where I feel like it's coming but I can't get the tears to come out and she was straight to action she turned the lights down we had a dim lamp on she put an Adele record on she got me to sit on the couch with a glass of wine (laughs) and just sit she said just sit there in the dark with your feelings and feel it and sure enough within a minute or two the tears were flowing and they just kept coming I needed help to get there but I got there (laughs) you'd think at 42 I could I could you know sit and have a cry anytime I needed to but sometimes I need a little a little nudge (laughs) a little safe place (laughs) yeah you spoke about birth trauma and Mm. I mean I can only imagine what that was like with your hemorrhage and um, the vacuum and feeling numb the first time with Ivy but then the hemorrhage with Luca you then mentioned seeing Luca like turn blue blue and again I can only imagine what that's like as a mum seeing Mm. your kid go through that yeah like like here's me saying I don't cry but I well up thinking about it every time because I was actually hooked up to the IV for my um, iron infusion and my sister was in the room with me and the emergency button was on the opposite side and I couldn't reach it because of my IV and I just had Luca on me and I thought I thought she was gone and I just yelled at my sister hit that fucking button right Mm. now and they all came running and my sister ran out and screamed she's not breathing and um, you know nurses came running in to grab Luca and swifter away to recess and I even with my anemia I grabbed my pole my IV pole and walked to where she was because of course you want to be with your baby you don't want them taken away from you and I got in there and there was at least 10 doctors standing around her you know working on bringing her back and she sort of started to pink up and then they sat me down on a chair and on a wheelchair and started explaining to me that they were going to take her down to special care and um, and that what they thought would happen had happened was that she'd had one of these dusky episodes from um, fluid or whatever, but she had several more while she was in special care. So I was sitting in there for 14 hours a day. She was in the... Um, they used to be called humidity cribs. I think they're called isolates now. So, the you know, she was jaundiced and she was in that machine. So I couldn't sort of hold her any time I liked. Um, lucky for me, I could get her out for feeds. She was um, 2.4 kilos, so she was big enough and well enough for me to be able to feed her properly, unlike some of the other preemies in there that had to be tube fed. But um, I just sat on a chair next to her isolate for 14 hours a day and then I would, um, I think one night I slept in a recliner next to her because I, I just couldn't leave her and they were saying, you know, you can go home and come back in the morning but I couldn't leave her. Another night they got a bed for me and I slept in the hospital and they called me every three hours to come and breastfeed. 
Um, and then there was one night, I think it was the third or fourth night where I was absolutely exhausted. I was, I had really swollen feet after I give birth. I just blow up like a balloon for some reason. Um, and they sent me home and, but I was getting up every three hours to pump. Um, and at four o'clock I did my four o'clock pump and I just said to Alex, I can't wait any longer. I want to go back to the hospital. I can't be away from her. So I got in an Uber and I was there as the sun was coming up and she was waking up for her morning feed. So I was sitting in there on my stitched up perineum (laughs) with my severe anemia and my swollen feet for hours and hours a day because I was just so in love with this beautiful baby. But yeah, she kept just kept having these dusky episodes. So she, every day that we thought, oh, we're going home today, she would hold her breath again and give us all the fright. But Strangely enough, by the time we got home, I'd spent so much time with her and I'd observed her breathing on the monitors so much that I felt really, I wasn't anxious anymore that she was going to do that anymore. And Alex hadn't had the opportunity to spend as much time with her and was still really nervous. And she'd said, right, we're taking turns not sleeping. One of us is going to have eyes on her all night, every night, you know. And it got like that first night at home, I just had to say to Alex, she's okay, we can go to sleep. I know, I know that she's okay. Um, And we'd bought one of those little outlet oxygen monitors that go on their feet, but we didn't even take it out of the box. We'd sort of panic bought it when she first was put in special care. But by the time we got home, I felt confident enough that she was okay that I said, no, we're sending that back. We don't need alarms going off during the night. She is okay. I really, yeah, for some reason my anxiety dissipated. I was completely smitten and um, I just felt really, really sure that she was okay and we had this this time. And she was okay, thank goodness. And she was okay and she was one of those magical unicorn babies that slept through the night from eight weeks. So I was getting good rest. She is an absolute tyrant now (laughs) at two and a half. And she doesn't sleep through the night and she doesn't eat her dinner and she bites kids at daycare and she's she's a walking tantrum. But she was just a really beautiful, easy, lovely baby. She was just beautiful. She still is. She's absolutely beautiful. She's just very hard work at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) She looks up at me with these long golden ringlets and beautiful blue eyes and then she's, you know, looking at me at just as she throws something that she knows she shouldn't be throwing, you know, looks at you with that beautiful face just as she's doing something cheeky. <laughs> you know, yeah, she's a feisty one, that's for sure. <laughs> in terms of the trauma and the EMDR, yeah, where did that come in? So I'd had EMDR even before um, I'd had my kids, oh, wow. but I've had it I've had it to deal with my birth trauma for both yeah. um, both occasions, actually. So my psychologist does hypnotherapy mm-hmm. and EMDR yeah. and um, all sorts of things. So we'd I'd had you know CBT and ACT and sort of talk therapy for you know as I said earlier throughout my twenties and my thirties. And I think um, in my late thirties, when I was still struggling with things, I would say to my psychologist, you know, how much therapy do I need before I'm going to be okay you know I would go and see her for a few sessions be okay for six to 12 months and then fall in a bit of a hole again and have to go back and I just every time I went back I had that sense of oh I've failed therapy you know I thought I was fixed last time and now I'm back again and um, yeah she just I remember her saying to me at one point a few years ago are you up for trying something a bit different it's going to seem a bit strange but let's give it a go and um She handed me an iPad that had a little ball that went back and forth and back and forth and she got me to recall the emotion that I was, you know, the the traumatic memory or event that I was thinking about. Um, So a good example is Alex had a pretty bad motorcycle accident eight weeks before our wedding and that I I needed EMDR after that. Mm. So, you know, recall that event, sit in the feelings, notice where in the body you're feeling them and you just watch this ball go back and forth as you sit in that feeling and slowly over, you know, 30 or 60 seconds it releases. It's the most bizarre... (laughs) the most bizarre treatment um there's another way that she does it where she has a sort of um a a long stick that she holds up that has a little node on the end that I stare at and she finds a point in my vision you know I sort of look around and there's a certain eye position where you feel that feeling most intensely Mm -hmm. and then I stare at the stick as I sit in that feeling and it slowly releases I won't even begin to try and understand or describe the science behind it because I don't know how it works
tracks, but it does. It just means that you can recall that event as a memory without feeling it, um, feeling the trauma each time. So yeah, they've they've discovered that moving your eyes in a specific way or in a repetitive way will actually reprocess the memory so that it doesn't bring up the traumatic feelings. That's right. So it just becomes, as you said, the memory rather than a triggered memory. Yeah. Yep. Without the feeling attached, the negative feelings attached. The to negative it. or the very overwhelming yeah. feelings. It's you know, you still feel something. Yes. But yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, no. I'm never going to look back fondly on um no. being hit by a car while <laughs> no. riding a motorcycle. Um yeah, that's never going to be a fond memory, no. but you can look back on it without feeling such overwhelming negativity. Yeah. And with both girls as well. I've had it for both of my um, births as well, yeah, and for the that horrible memory of Luca turning blue and going to resales. I did EMDR for that. Yeah. Look, I still feel um, those emotions really intensely because that's my baby. But I guess at the time I definitely felt like it helped a lot. Um, but I, I don't think I'll ever look back on that and not no. not well up if I'm describing it to someone. Of course. And was it you that mm. prompted and said to your therapist, I want to do this? Or was it something she brought up? Or um, I think there's definitely been times where I've gone and said, I need to stare at that ball today. <laughs> um, this is what we need to deal with. But I think um, I think that time she brought it up. Okay. Um, I'd just gone in and she'd asked me to describe the birth. and. Um, and then the postnatal experience and said, yeah, we absolutely, I mean, even just the hemorrhage. I think actually Alex should go and do some EMDR because witnessing the hemorrhage for her was um, quite extreme. I mentioned before we had a birth photographer. There's a photo of her in black and white standing in the hallway holding Luca, teeny tiny newborn Luca. They've just wheeled me down to theatre and she thought that I was going, she thought she'd lost me and she was standing in the hallway thinking I'm going to be raising two kids alone um, because no one can bleed that much and survive. So for her it would have been very difficult to watch. And secondary trauma is such a thing, you know, you might not be the one going through it, but it's like you are, you know, that's your loved one. Yeah, it's a lot. It's been a journey, hey. Yeah. We have been on quite a journey through IVF and um, miscarriage and both both births and then postnatal. Yeah. It certainly hasn't, I'm not one to glow when pregnant, put it that way. <laughs> I'm not that um, glowing earth mother who loves being pregnant and... <laughs> But I mean, those those physical complications, they take such a toll on our mental health. They do. And you've had it stack one on top of the other. Yeah. Like it- I, I don't know if you came across when you were in hospital, but um, there was a particular tool, a test that I had to do when I was in the in the psychiatric hospital and it was around life stresses and there were all these different categories of life stress like starting a new job moving house the end of a relationship the death of a loved one that type of thing and there were a number of points allocated to each and the number of points that you had sort of indicated your likelihood of having some sort of adverse mental health event and even a a complete mental breakdown which is you know essentially what I had and I think that the top ranking on there was something like if you had 200 points um you Mm. were you were at extremely high risk of a serious adverse mental health event and it was obviously developed pre-covid because living in a pandemic wasn't even uh (laughs) i didn't get bonus points for that i didn't get points for having hyperemesis i didn't get points for having had a postnatal hemorrhage or miscarriage so i think even without all of those factors i was somewhere in the 350 to 400s and i remember saying to my doctor like I'm here we go overachieving again you know if if, <laughs> if we counted everything I'd be up around the five six hundred mark like this had this was the mental breakdown that had to happen you know yeah. it's the, it's it's too much for someone to bear and I'm so fortunate to have such a supportive hands-on partner and we have both sets of grandparents living within sort of a you know 20 to 40 minute drive um, and our kids are the only grandchildren so we've got mm. incredible family support so I just can't even stress how much I respect parents who like single parents who are doing it alone or even um, you know couples who are doing it without the support of grandparents or aunties and uncles around if you never get a date night or you know never get a break whatsoever or as a single parent you can't afford to get sick because who's going to take care of your kids I just can't stress enough how much I respect the journey that that those folks are on I don't know how they do it 
<laughs> yeah, especially if you consider PNDA on top of that. How do you afford therapy? How do you even have time for therapy? You can't take your toddler to therapy to talk about your no. PNDA. No, no, how would you how would you possibly make that happen? Yeah, my heart goes out and oh. I'm sure you feel the same. I know how lucky I am to have been admitted to an MBU. Me too. Yeah. And I could afford to do that. Yeah. I had a husband support me in that process. Like you, we live 20 minutes from that MBU. Yeah. It's, it's not lost on me how many mothers don't have that. That's right. Even if you have the private health insurance and can get access, if you live four hours away and you've got a two-year-old at home, you're not going to go, no. are you? You know, And you're not no. going to get that critical help that you so need. And then if you don't have private health insurance and you're just going into the mainstream system with no MBU, how how terrifying that must be. You know, I was terrified going into a private hospital and I can't even imagine what it would be like, how, how scared and um, how scared of the unknown you would be going into the mainstream system in a public hospital. Especially if you present to emergency, you can't bring your kids with you. No. And that would be such a barrier, not being able to bring your baby along, especially if you're experiencing it with a very young baby, as so many people do. One last question. Sure. If you could change anything in the system, what would you change? Oh, um, much more intensive and, um, and I don't want to say trauma-informed, but perinatal health-informed mm. um, checks. Yeah checks at the start um, throughout pregnancy throughout um, the early postnatal period right up till probably two years of age I think our system needs to keep a much closer watch um, and do that in a really nurturing um, validating supporting way that makes it okay to disclose I'm having these feelings or these thoughts I'm not okay and then if that is disclosed making sure that the supports are there and available to um, to carry that that mother or that father or whoever it might be forward. I think we need so much more in terms of early intervention. Oh, yeah. um, we definitely need more MBUs mm -hmm. across the country. I, I heard a statistic, it's something like only there's only 20 or something like that across the entire country mm. and that might even be being generous. Yeah. Um, definitely need more specialised MBUs but I think there would be so many women. We say that it's something like one in five um, experience an adverse mental health event in the postnatal period. I'm absolutely certain that it's more than that and that there are so many that are going undiagnosed because they're just suffering in silence at home. So, yeah, more opportunities to pick it up and offer support. I hope. I hope one day we get there. Well, I'm going to keep making noise about it, that's Good. for sure. <laughs> So this inspired you with your blog, Mental as a Mother. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd always told stories. I'm a natural storyteller. I work in communications. When I had Ivy, I would talk to friends and they used to always say, oh, you should start a blog. It's so funny hearing you talk about it. And I used to think, oh, yeah, what have I got to say that's unique or different? You know, it's not very interesting. But when I was in the hospital after having P&D with Luca, I did think, okay, this is interesting. Someone sharing a real story of quite extreme perinatal mental health um, and being open and honest about being in a hospital. I thought this might help somebody if, if um, it can reduce some stigma because, you know, I'm a high functioning person and I do, I try and do all the right things and it happened to me. And yeah. um and I've definitely found, for me, it's so, so rewarding when anyone messages me to say, oh, my God, I could have written this myself. Or um, you've just put completely into words something that I was feeling and didn't know what language to put around it. So I started a website. I started writing sort of longer form blogs. And then I, um, you know, started publishing those on Facebook and Instagram. And and I still do that. I'd love to do TikTok. But gosh, it takes time. And <laughs> I'm not a very good content creator. I would love to make so much more. I've got so much that I want to say and do. Um, I don't aspire to be any kind of influencer, but I do aspire to be an advocate. And so yeah. I think with having, um, you know, a platform and, and a big enough audience, hopefully um, a seat at the table at discussions around more MBUs or, yeah. you know, just more of an opportunity to advocate for better support for perinatal mental health. That's that's why I'm doing it. And I think you do a good job of it if I can Thank say. You. You're always very open on Instagram. And I remember I think the first time we crossed paths, I made a post which happened to be about this is why we need more MBUs. And you had shared that. And then you shared a bit of your journey with me. And I thought, 
I, I love this woman, right? <laughs> I think we have a lot in common. And no matter how much you tried to avoid it or how prepared we might have thought we were. Or, yeah, or how much we thought we knew. or yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it happens. I was so on the lookout for my mental health with Luca after having having had the experience with Ivy. And that's, you know, that time when I was on the lookout and doing all the right things, that's the time that I got the sickest. So. Yeah. It can it can strike anywhere. And it doesn't discriminate. I know I say Absolutely that a lot, not. but it really doesn't. And to have an advocate who you meet online across Australia, I'm grateful for what you do for this community. So thank you. Oh, well, I'm so grateful for your podcast. And when I saw that you were doing it, I just thought how wonderful that someone someone's actually put thought into action and that these stories get to be heard because, you know, so many people need to hear them and connect with them and understand that they're not alone because that is it is so isolating it's so easy to think that you're a pioneer and that you're the only one who's ever felt this way and what's wrong with me but you're just so not alone it's it's just so much more common than than we'd like to admit and if if anyone's out there feeling like that I just hope that they know that they're not alone and that you don't need to feel ashamed and that help is available you can talk to your GP you can call Panda I called Panda when I was first struggling with Ivy that's perinatal anxiety and depression Australia and I'm a volunteer advocate for them now and um, they were a huge help to me and they do great work so I'm, I'm really grateful for them and I'm super grateful for your podcast <laughs> There go those goosebumps again. (laughs) Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.